is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith. We have all made mistakes. Some are big and some are small. But most of our mistakes people don't know about. But for some, everyone can see. Especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change and thankfully they can change for the better. But not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang related and racist tattoos for free, and there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started. I helped start it. I'm not going to take all the credit for it because um, it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face and he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them. And uh, he was will and he was willing to pay, you know. But what I told him was I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger and and it's not going to do what you want it to do and so we discussed lasers but the bottom line was i really could see the hurt you know that this guy was going through because he had done this you know gotten these tattoos and that he needed he just wanted to uh do his job and not have people follow him or you know and and i could see that and so my wife kind of looked at me and said you know you can help people and so we made the post and this post that we made i think that was on january something it was mid-january um and we basically said if you have hate or uh racist tattoos gang or racist tattoos that we will you know help you remove them no questions asked cover them up whatever and it went viral and to the point where like I had to turn off notifications on my phone so did my wife my wife she didn't even know what viral meant she was just like what's going on you know and I was explaining to her I said hey this thing you you know the post you just did is going viral and she thought she was like how did I get a virus you know like she didn't even know what viral was so they needed some help once that happened I'd say, you know, we probably got 1,000 inquiries to uh, get help. Then we saw that that there was a need, and we started Redemption, Inc. Um, We had someone help us build the website, and I had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it Random Acts of Tattoo, she kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption Inc. because it was it's less to say than random acts of tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do and name it, and um, it just and, and then that took off actually. This random act of kindness is changing people's lives, giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. 
What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You know, the bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. That that much I can definitely say. You know, how they're feeling or, like, a lot of them are, are, are scared because, number one, they're, they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me. And a few of them even traveled from far away so far. And, so, and by the way, so far I've helped, personally helped 22 people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two. Yeah, they're, at first they're a little scared, but then once I get them, you know, in my chair, I talk to them like people, and, and you know, I, I get to hear the story behind it. And most of them were, I would have to say, you know, ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves, they need to either, most of them, join a gang. And most of them, they were white supremacist gangs. It, the sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not with somebody, you're usually, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim? When these people have come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards? Yeah, it's a couple of them. Yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and, and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing. And, and it does, it definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20-something years of tattooing. You know, people people do feel that they have to, I guess, and so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody, and so, you know, be, doing that definitely makes me feel good. I, like, I definitely don't have to do it, but I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it. Of course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing. You know, when they come in my shop, the first thing that we do is we make them feel comfortable. And, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like, I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not, we're here to, you know, fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media if they don't want to be involved in that, then I, my first priority is definitely their safety. And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story here on Our American Stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story, and by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll try and get them on the air. When we come back, more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety. A lot of these gangs are even racist people. They're, they get mad when people quit, and, and it really is true. You know, blood in, blood out. Like A lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today. You know what I mean? Like, like we don't do that. So that they come, when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but we make sure that, hey, we're here. Here's my hand. Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property. So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stunts and you know they those guys kind of i guess it's a a a big deal to tag somebody you know or i I, it it never made sense to me like you know if you have a girlfriend or a dog or (laughs) you know like you don't tattoo them and say property up like nobody should be property of anybody and and you know these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to you know, it's almost out of a, a necessity or, or even scare because they, you know, if they say no, that this, then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when, when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done or felt, you know, the shame of, of uh, even, hating somebody you know and and i think that's a cool thing and i'm sorry that they feel that way but it's cool that they they do you know i'm there to witness and and realize hey i made a mistake more of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes these folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others but also honest about their desire to change and many of the stories are actually very similar I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, the sad thing is they're all like they're all, you know, pretty much the same, and and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody, and um, you know, of course, part of the thing was I didn't want them, you know, if they want to tell me, then they can, but we don't. I don't make anybody say anything, you know, because they've already been judged enough. I have. So far, seeing a couple of the people that I've tattooed moved on, and, and you know, they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had white power on his arms. And one of the kids, Brandon, that I tattooed, he's engaged now and getting ready to get married. And, and you know, he uh, he he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo. It was really fun. He, he traveled a little bit to. Uh, come see us but 
He was extremely, actually, I think he traveled from New York City, but he was extremely nice. And, and you know, when he talked to some of the media people, he, he explained how he felt the shame of, of having to do what he had to do. But if he didn't do that, you know, it was more being a victim again. And, and again, who wants to be a victim? And these people are truly making attempts to change. But unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced. It's all been uh, pretty fun, and, and um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that that you know they're about moving on and, and going to school or just moving on with their lives. And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you? Absolutely. I had no clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, it just, wow. <laughs> like even the, the stuff going viral. And then, you know, I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because, you know, not everybody... The sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody, there's always going to be somebody that says, hey, that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help. It's sad that, that these people believe them. I didn't want to see those things, so I had to separate myself from it. It's kind of sad. You know, in my mind, forgiving somebody is, is more important, you know, to, and, and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job? Or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago? Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone? It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually... What happened basically was the media, some, some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions, it, it kind of got to me and, and you know, and it, it kind of gave me a wow moment. Well, you're changing lives. You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because, uh, like, these people... These people, they, they've already done the work, you know what I mean? Like, I, I shouldn't be getting credit for the, what the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step, you know, it, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up, send them on their way, they've already made the changes. They've already done, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles let's just say that I, I i'm comfortable with that <laughs> i help them remove obstacles they I, I believe that the people that uh and i truly really believe that that they've already done what they needed to do i didn't help them change they did it themselves I, i've tried to stay as humble as i possibly can like you know i have had people come up to me and you know, like, oh, my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, and it, it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face. But like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy. I'm just the last guy in line. And for some reason, I got picked. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> I got picked to be that guy that is, so to speak, helping people. And, and 
when in fact they've done the work already. But someone has to do it. I got to say that someone has to do it. Have you guys expanded? Are there other places doing this? Are you trying to get other places involved? Yes, actually, yes to all those. Um, when we made the website, we actually got a few other people, you know, that, that would call us up. And um, in fact, on the website, there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help. Say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh, operator in, in a state. Like, if you want to help us, like, we definitely need the help. We definitely appreciate, uh, the, you know, the 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 assistance. Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out. And, and not saying that I'm better than somebody else. I kind of believe that, like, for example, if someone in Indiana needs help, well, of course, that's, you know, pretty far away from Maryland. And, you know, they're not going to come here. But if I have somebody in, in Indiana that can help them, then I'll send them to them. But I also want to be able, you know, to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be give them a good service. So we actually look, look at their websites, look at their work, and, hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe. We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption, Inc. Whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. By the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave... And help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys, inmates. My goodness, you got to choose sometimes. Not in a gang, you're going to get beat. You got to pick one. Redemptioninc.org is where you go. Redemptioninc, and that's I-N-K.org. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Dave Cutlip's story, Redemption Inc. story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when in doubt, the sound bites from Sling Blade. Never heard. Yeah, shut up. Yeah. And this is Our American Stories. Focus on graduation. And for the, for the month, we are going to focus on mostly great graduation speeches. And occasionally some really wretched ones. And today... We have a commencement speech that's regimented, and it's poignant. It's a commencement address to the students at the University of Texas at Austin in 2014. 
An address that's received almost 4 million views on YouTube. That means it's got to be pretty good. I know mine by Governor Keene of New Jersey at Fairleigh Dickinson University in 1984 was not one that you'll find on YouTube. Real snore fest, huh? A real snore fest. (laughs) This commencement speaker is most often recognized and credited with the organizing and execution of Operation Neptune Spear, more commonly known as the Special Ops Raid that led to the death of Osama bin Laden. His name is Admiral William H. Bill McRaven, himself a 1977 Navy ROTC grad of the University of Texas. Let's join him now. So the university's slogan is, what starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. Tonight, there are almost 8,000 students. So that great paragon of analytical rigor, Ask.com, says that the average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, then in five generations, 125 years, the class of 2014 will have changed the lives of 800 million people. 800 million people. Think about it. Over twice the population of the United States. Go one more generation and you can change the entire population of the world. 8 billion people. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, you're wrong. I saw it happen every day in Iraq and Afghanistan. A young army officer makes a decision to go left instead of right down a road in Baghdad and the 10 soldiers with him are saved from a close-in ambush. In Kandahar province, Afghanistan, a non-commissioned officer from the female engagement team senses that something isn't right and directs the infantry platoon away from a 500-pound IED, saving the lives of a dozen soldiers. But if you think about it, not only were those soldiers saved by the decisions of one person, but their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. Let's continue with Admiral McRaven's commencement address. I've been a Navy SEAL for 36 years, but it all began when I left UT for basic SEAL training in Coronado, California. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, torturous runs in the soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure, and hardships. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact 
that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. McRaven then on to lesson number two. During SEAL training, the students... During training, the students are all broken down into boat crews. Each crew is seven students, three on each side of a small rubber boat, and one coxswain to help guide the dinghy. Every day, your boat crew forms up on the beach and is instructed to get through the surf zone and paddle several miles down the coast. In the winter, the surf off San Diego can get to be eight to 10 feet high, and it is exceedingly difficult to paddle through the plunging surf unless everyone digs in. Every paddle must be synchronized to the stroke count of the coxswain. Everyone must exert equal effort or the boat will turn against the wave and be unceremoniously dumped back on the beach. For the boat to make it to its destination, everyone must paddle. You can't change the world alone. You will need some help. And to truly get from your starting point to your destination takes friends, colleagues, the goodwill of strangers, and a strong coxswain to guide you. If you want to change the world, find someone to help you paddle. And then we get to lesson number three of this great commencement speech by Admiral McRaven. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had was made up of the little guys, the munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The Munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good natured fun of the tiny little flippers the Munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys from every corner of the nation and the world always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. And... By now, the student body is just riveted. They've not heard a speech like this before at four years at UT, that's for sure. And there's just no replacing the commanding presence of this guy. If you haven't seen this, you have to watch it too. Because this guy is up there crisp as crisp can be, but you're thinking that's not the usual caricature of a military guy that you see in the movies. Some dummy who's just hammering you over the head for no damn reason but to follow some stupid rule. That's not what's going on here. And the kids know it. 
When we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this great speech by Admiral McRaven at the University of Texas at Austin. And remember, this is right after Osama bin Laden had been killed, not too long after. This is the guy who helped spearhead that effort. We all know what SEAL Team 6 did. And that's an extraordinary group of men who did that. When we come back, Admiral McRaven, we're doing commencement speeches all month long, the good, the bad, and the ugly, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Commencement addresses all month long. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Admiral McRaven, we're going to catch his. By the way, he started the speech by telling everyone he didn't remember the graduation speaker. At his graduation, he was too hungover, so he wanted to keep it short and sweet, which got everyone laughing. Well, now we're on to lesson number four, and McRaven continues. Several times a week... The instructors would line up the class and do a uniform inspection. It was exceptionally thorough. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle, it just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, then wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in the uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. There were many a student who just couldn't accept the fact that all their efforts were in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right, it went unappreciated. Those students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. You were never going to succeed. You were never going to have a perfect uniform. The instructors weren't going to allow it. Sometimes, no matter how well you prepare or how well you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way life is sometimes. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. Great lesson. And here is lesson number five. Every day during training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long runs, long swims, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, something designed to test your mettle. Every event had standards, times you had to meet. If you failed to meet those times, Those standards, your name was posted on a list, and at the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. A circus was two hours of additional calisthenics designed to wear you down, to break your spirit, to force you to quit. No one wanted a circus. A circus meant more fatigue, and more fatigue meant that the following day would be more difficult and more circuses were likely. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone made the circus list. But an interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time, those students who did two hours of extra calisthenics got stronger and stronger. The pain of the circuses built inner strength and physical resiliency. Life is filled with circuses. You will fail 
You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times, it will test you to your very core. But if you, don't, if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses. And on to lesson six. At least twice a week, the trainees were required to run the obstacle course. The obstacle course contained 25 obstacles, including a 10-foot wall, a 30-foot cargo net, a barbed wire crawl, to name a few. But the most challenging obstacle was the slide for life. It had a three-level, 30-foot tower at one end and a one-level tower at the other. In between was a 200-foot-long rope. You had to climb the three-tiered tower, and once at the top, you grabbed the rope, swung underneath the rope, and pulled yourself hand over hand until you got to the other end. The record for the obstacle course had stood for years when my class began in 1977. The record seemed unbeatable until one day a student decided to go down the slide for life head first. Instead of swinging his body underneath the rope and inching his way down, he bravely mounted the top of the rope and thrust himself forward. It was a dangerous move, seemingly foolish and fraught with risk. Failure could mean injury and being dropped from the course. Without hesitation, the student slid down the rope perilously fast. Instead of several minutes, it only took him half that time. And by the end of the course, he had broken the record. If you want to change the world, sometimes you have to slide down the obstacles head first. Take risks is what he's telling these young people. And by the way, they're rarely told that. Get an A, get an A, get an A. He's saying, take the risk. Here's lesson number seven. During the land warfare phase of training, the students are flown out to San Clemente Island, which lies off the coast of San Diego. The waters off San Clemente are a breeding ground for the great white sharks. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if the shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. Yeah, you're wondering how much of that is being taught at our major campuses in this country. You've got to think, not a bit. And that's what was so great about this speech. He was challenging a lot of the orthodoxies of the campus life itself with the greatest of institutions, the U.S. military. Lesson number eight. As Navy SEALs, one of our jobs is to conduct underwater attacks against enemy shipping. We practice this technique ex- extensively during training. The ship attack mission is where a pair of SEAL divers is dropped off outside an enemy harbor and then swims well over two miles underwater using nothing but a depth gauge and a compass to get to the target. It is comforting to know that there is open water above you. But as you approach the ship, which is tied to a pier, the light begins to fade. The steel structure of the ship blocks the moonlight. It blocks the surrounding street lamps. It blocks all ambient light. To be successful in your mission, you have to swim under the ship and find the keel, the center line, and the deepest part of the ship. 
this is your objective. But the keel is also the darkest part of the ship, where you cannot see your hand in front of your face, where the noise from the ship's machinery is deafening, and where it gets to be easily disoriented, and you can fail. Every SEAL knows that under the keel, at that darkest moment of the mission, is a time when you need to be calm, when you must be calm, when you must be composed, when all your tactical skills, your physical power, and your inner strength must be brought to bear. If you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moments. And here is Lesson 9. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up, eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. And then came the last and probably the most important lesson. And this is how the speech by Admiral McRaven ended. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell. A brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell and you no longer have to wake up at five o'clock. Ring the bell and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. To the class of 2014, you are moments away from graduating, moments away from beginning your journey through life, moments away from starting to change the world for the better. It will not be easy, but you are the class of 2014, the class that can affect the lives of 800 million people in the next century. Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, Step up when the times are the toughest. Face down the bullies. Lift up the downtrodden and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. Thank you very much. Hook'em horns. Hook'em horns. 
And it doesn't get better than that, folks. A lucky class at the University of Texas in 2014. Admiral William H. Bill McRaven. This is commencement month. We're going to play the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories. You're listening to Bono introducing the streets with no name. And he's been doing this a lot in his life now, singing his favorite gospel song openly and with passion. We've done a lot of stories of the song here on this show. This is the first time we're spending an hour. And it's not just the story of a song. It's the story of a man, John Newton's story, the writer of Amazing Grace. And John Newton grew up in the 18th century under very difficult conditions. His father was a seaman out in the sea, making his living rough, rough times, rough, rough life. And to tell the story of John Newton and his early life and the seminal experience in his life, which was getting drafted at a very young age to go off and fight on a military warship. Imagine this, the 18th century, a young man just, well, you don't exactly volunteer for these positions back then. Here's Brian Edwards, author of Through Many Dangers, The Story of John Newton. He gave a lecture telling this mesmerizing story. It started with this seminal moment in young John Newton's life. 1744, the French fleet was becoming increasingly aggressive in the Channel, and King George II grew alarmed. The British Navy was always short of sailors. After all, who in his right mind would volunteer to be treated like an animal and suffer the butchery of 18th century naval warfare for just 24 shillings a month? That's £1.20 in modern money, especially when you could earn at least twice that amount if you were in the merchant service. And the government's answer to the shortage of recruitment was the infamous press gang. As part of the war effort, on Saturday the 25th of February, 1744, a day of strong gales with snow, 
First Lieutenant T Thomas Ruffin, delivered to Captain Carteret of HMS Harwich, anchored just off Sheerness in Kent, eight impressed men, one of whom was John Newton. A merchant sailor was always a prime target of the press gangs, and his bandy legs, his bawdy language, and his rolling gait was a giveaway on the waterfront at Chatham. His name was duly entered into the muster roll early in March. HMS Harridge was a fourth-rate man of war, 976 tons, 50 guns, a length of 140 feet, and a crew of 300. For a month, John suffered cruelly as new crew members were literally beaten into submission. Admiral Vernon, one of the more humane admirals of his time, commented, I quote, Our fleets are defrauded by injustice, marred by violence and maintained by cruelty. Food was almost inedible, water foul, discipline harsh, vir escape virtually impossible. And yet because his father was a merchant sea captain and Newton himself had already been to sea with his father, he was soon promoted as midshipman. Newton had a rough start, but he didn't give up. Even amidst his forced service, he did not lose hope, specifically with the love of his life, Polly. He made sure to write her as often as he could. On the 24th of January, 1745, John, just off a four-hour watch and at one o'clock in the morning, found a space somewhere on the cramped crew quarters to write a letter. He began, Dear Polly, this is the first letter we have from Newton's pen, and it's a warm, flowing, passionate, 18th-century love letter, which closed, I am your most faithful, devoted admirer, Newton. And it ended with a wonderful flourish of squiggles. John was turned 19 and far removed from his mother's Christian faith. Mary Catlett, whom he nicknamed Polly, was just 16 two days before the letter was written. John was raised with a strong Christian faith, but the life of a seaman didn't afford him the best environment to grow into a godly man. All of his early Christian influence came from his mom. John was born on the 24th of July, 1725, at a little village called Wapping, just a mile downriver from the Tower of London. His mother, Elizabeth, was married to a merchant captain living in Red Lion Street. She was a sincere Christian and a member of the independent chapel of Dr. Jennings. John was brought up, therefore, on Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts. Sadly, his mother died just before John's seventh birthday, and by the age of 11, he was at sea with his father. Two years of inferior schooling was all that he ever had. Dr. Johnson, the great uh, lexographer, uh, said uh, of Wapping that one, day, one had only to visit the place, quote, to see such modes of life that one could scarcely imagine. Well, before he was the age of 11, John had seen all those modes of life. He could walk down the end of his street and at execution dock, as it was known, he could watch mutineers and pirates hanging in chains until three tides had washed over them. He saw at a young age things most adults could not handle, but he maintained a soft side, and especially for the woman he gave his heart to. In 1742, John's father had arranged for him to take a job in Jamaica, 
and with time to kill beforehand, he visited the family of Mr. and Mrs. Catlett in Chatham, uh, in whose home Elizabeth Newton had died. They had six children, and Mary, the eldest girl, was almost 14 years when he first met her. As soon as John saw her, he fell madly in love with his Polly, a love that he claimed exceeded all that the Romantics ever thought of, and it remained true and steadfast and unwavering until Mary's death almost 50 years later. And when we come back, more on the life of John Newton, author, writer of Amazing Grace, and we'll capture and chronicle how that song crossed an ocean and became the most played, sung, and known gospel song in America and, of course, the world. This is Our American Stories. stories and we continue with the story of a song and of course the story of a man the song amazing grace the man john newton who wrote it newton's life did not fly into a happily ever after parade of events indeed all the evil that he experienced ultimately became entrenched in his heart but from now on his life became a tangled web of romance impetuous action and unbelief John missed his boat to Jamaica, angered his father, visited Chatham as often as he could, overstayed his welcome, had no career to offer Mary or impress her parents, and finally, for his stupidity, he was himself impressed into His Majesty's Navy. When he wrote that passionate love letter in January 1745, John Newton had been converted to a free-thinking deist. That is, If there is a God, and we cannot know if there is, he's unconcerned, unconnected with this world. And therefore, from now on, morality was for John Newton to decide. He would plan his own life. The Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts were things of the past. John Newton became an evangelist for unbelief. Years later, he wrote in his diary on the 21st of March, 1757, I quote, I was at that time a sinner beyond the common measure of men, having fallen from a pretty close outward profession of the gospel into the blackest apostasy, so that at the age of 22, or rather much sooner, I not only took counsel with the ungodly and walked in the way of sinners, but I was set in the seat of the scorner. I had lived for about four years, not a denier only, but a despiser of the gospel, venting the most outrageous blasphemies in all companies and upon all occasions, speaking of redemption, that amazing display of divine love, wisdom and power as an unholy, insignificant thing, and the person of my ever-blessed and gracious Redeemer as an imposter. In all this time, 
I believe I never was in the company of any person that made the least pretense of a religious life, but I either endeavoured to laugh him out of it, or if that failed, scorned him in my heart. Never opened or spoke of the scriptures, but in order to introduce a profane jest upon them. Never spent half an hour with anyone with freedom, but I tempted him to sin. For my practice was as vile and abominable as my principles." so that I not only, as many others, indulge youthful sallies, as they are called by some, but lived in the habitual practice of every vice in which my age and circumstances were capable, theft and drunkenness only excepted. And in all these, I was a ringleader and a seducer of others. This was a man who had come to hate God and all those that followed him. The one thing that his heart had a space for that he longed for, besides his evil ways, was his Mary, and he tried to reach her, but to no avail. The thought of five years' separation from Mary was too much for John, and shortly after that love letter was written, John Newton deserted his ship. He was recaptured by dragoons, and Captain Carteret ordered what was known then as a red-checked shirt on the grating. 25 to 30 lashes across his bare back, after which he was carried below where his wounds were cauterized with vinegar, neat spirit, salt water or hot tar, and for days he was in a delirium. In May 1745, the fleet was anchored at Madeira and Newton managed to get himself exchanged for a seaman from a small merchant ship called the Pegasus. And this was possibly his introduction to slavery. The Pegasus was outward bound for Sierra Leone and the adjacent parts of the West African coast. If the Pegasus was a slave trader, her cargo was composed of an uninteresting assortment of lead, copper kettles, brass pans, ladles, basins, boilers, guns, gunpowder, knives and other miscellaneous items. And then, darkly stored away in her hold was a grisly array of chains, shackles, neck collars, leg and handcuffs and thumbscrews. Part of her cargo was the money with which to purchase slaves from the local traders on the West African coast, and the other part was the means by which the slaves were kept in order during the fearful second leg of the trade mission from Africa to the West Indies or the Americas, a journey often exceeding seven weeks. Having offloaded the slaves... The ship would then take on sugar, ginger, rum, pearls, cotton and all the other commodities eagerly awaited by the British consumers and it would return home across the final leg of the Atlantic Ocean. It's what became known as the triangular trade. And thus began John Newton's deep work and entanglement with his darkest, darkest of professions, the slave trade itself. John Newton was to become very familiar with this triangular trade, which would generally take somewhere between 12 and 14 months to complete. It was considered at the time, I quote, a genteel occupation. He might have done well, but he worked for an unscrupulous trader and he became a virtual slave himself and the pity of slaves. In fact, he sank so low that he dabbled in animism, at one time even worshipped the moon, and was in the parlance of the time a white man become black. He lived and believed like the natives. In February 1747, by a quite remarkable coincidence, he found himself on board a merchant ship, 
the greyhound, bound for England. Only his love for Mary and a blatant lie from the ship's captain actually made him head for home. He soon angered the captain by his foul language and bawdy songs, which often ridiculed both the ship and the captain without mentioning either of them by name. But, of course, by the same token, he was very popular with the crew. Halfway across the Atlantic, disaster hit the little ship. On the 10th of March, 1748, a fierce storm shattered the mast and rigging, and the little ship was only kept afloat by her cargo of timber and beeswax. Newton joked that it would be something to laugh over a jug of beer when they arrived at port, to which a sailor on board responded, Oh, no, no, it's too late now. And that, for some reason, went through Newton like a knife. For the first time since a childhood, Newton found himself praying. Lashed to the wheel or working the pumps gave him time to think. Involuntarily, he repeated the words that he had learned from his mother, Proverbs 1, 23, all the way through 31, and his memory seemed aided as he muttered above the wind and the torn canvas these condemning words. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man has regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they shall call me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Finally, after days of anguish and torture of mind, hope and peace flooded in as he put his wavering trust in Christ alone. He later wrote, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The greyhound, broken and barely afloat, arrived off Ireland in Loch Swilly, appropriately on Good Friday, the 8th of April, 1748. John Newton's hard heart had been beaten soft, but he had nothing. In his old ways, well, they began calling to him. No money, and with not enough gall to borrow from Polly's father, John set out on what he called his long, lonely walk back to Liverpool. He couldn't afford a coach. He walked every one of the 250 miles of the journey. He signed on as first mate on a slave ship, the Brownlow, and he backslid to the point of becoming almost as bad as before. A near-fatal fever brought him to his senses, and in his delirium and just out of it, he gave his life wholly to Christ. And when we come back, more of the story of Amazing Grace. It's John Newton's story. Of course, it's the story of the song. And of course, it's the story of God's influence himself on a man who needed saving and needed grace. The story of Amazing Grace, the story of John Newton, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of John Newton and the story of a song, Amazing Grace. And we're listening, by the way, to Brian Edwards, the author of Through Many Dangers, the story of John Newton. God had brought Newton to his breaking point yet again, and finally his life began to fall in place. But he had not yet realized the evils of the slave trade. On the 1st of February, back home, 1750, John married Mary at St. Margaret's Parish Church in Rochester, Kent. He had been offered a ship of his own. Now he had something to offer her, and of course, in 18th century style, her father as well. Six months later, in command of his own ship, the Duke of Argyle, a hundred tons and a crew of almost 30, including the captain and mate, he set out on his first journey as a slave ship captain. And for this genteel occupation, he sought the prayers of Christian people before he left. Now, his voyages were always fraught with danger. In the first place, The captain always had, by definition, an unruly crew. Sometimes he recorded in his log that he had to pin some of them to the deck in irons in order to bring them to heel. And then there was always the problem of the slaves looking for an opportunity to escape with 100, 150 or more below decks packed in uh, like books on a shelf. If they did manage to break free, and there are many records where they did on ships, they would massacre understandingly the entire crew before they themselves uh, tried to bring the ship back home. And then, with an unruly crew and the slaves always looking for an opportunity for escape, there was disease and fever. Newton later worked out that something like one out of five sailors never returned home, which compared roughly to the figure of one of all four slaves who died in transit. And when you did land on the African coast or the West Indies, intrigue and treachery by black and white traders alike was rife. Newton said there was only one person on the African coast he ever trusted. Privateers and pirates ruled the seas. Many of the ships to and froing in an earlier century between the new, new lands of America and uh, the home country disappeared without trace because the Barbary pirates from North Africa that were also patrolling the seas made sure that the economy of the North African coast depended upon white slaves, a fact that is not often brought to notice. There was bad weather too and not very good navigation tools and rats ate at the sails and the feet of slaves and sailors alike. This was not a trip. He took only once. He made three journeys in this command position, but he was increasingly uncomfortable with his way of life, which he said felt more like a turnkey or jailer, and it was. And, of course, he hated his separation from Mary, but he had no other career. He was a sailor. He knew nothing else. In November 1754, he was waiting for the fourth command in charge of a brand new ship that was being built for him. He was, in fact, a most successful uh, slave trader, and on his, his third and what proved to be his last voyage, he lost not one member of the crew and not one slave in his journeying, which is unique in the annals of the early the slave traders. But while he was waiting for this in Liverpool, he suddenly experienced a seizure which passed him out for just a few minutes. He recovered. He never experienced it again, but it ended his sailing career. So from August 1755, he was a customs officer at Liverpool. He was actually known as a tide surveyor. His job was to be rowed out by a party of men that he had under his command to every incoming ship and search them for contraband, uh, which, of course, he was very able to do, being an experienced sea captain himself. He knew where you would hide something on board. 
He changed careers again and began his adjustment to land life in Liverpool. Liverpool was a very hard city. Hard and godless. But it was while he was here that he began writing sermons and felt called to the ministry and was invited to preach in one or two churches. He nearly entered the independent ministry and there were times when he seriously considered becoming an evangelist for John Wesley and John Wesley would like him to have considered becoming his second in command to take over leadership when he himself died. But as it happened, and if I may cut the story shorter, on the 17th of June, 1764, he was ordained into the Church of England and settled at Oney in Buckinghamshire as curate in charge of St. Peter's and St. Paul's. And for 16 years, he was a patient, hard-working, caring country parson, often, we are told, wearing his old sea captain's jacket as he visited his people. Not very clerical, but that was Newton. What was his ministry like as a pastor? He wasn't apparently a great orator. Richard Cecil, his first biographer, said, I quote, his utterance was far from clear and his attitudes ungraceful. But he was a warm preacher and he had a consistent life to back it up. He once wrote, I measure ministers by square measure. I have no idea of the size of the table if you only tell me how long it is. But if you tell me how wide it is, I can tell you all its dimensions. So when you tell me what a man is in the pulpit, I want to know what he is like out of the pulpit before I shall know his size. His aim, he once said, was not to acquire the character of a ready speaker, but to win souls to Christ. He claimed he only preached longer than an hour when he had very little to say. Newton was a humble man, a self-taught man, but then came one of the more important moments in his life. He sat down and he wrote the book about his own life story, and it caused quite a sensation. The first year at Olney saw the publication, 1764, of his story, An Authentic Narrative. It was remarkably successful, translated into many languages as well. It was the story of his life up to that point, that year, 1764. Students, politicians, even an admiral made the day's journey from London to Oney to see this man once beaten on deck for deserting his ship. What an incredible testimony of a changed life. Newton continued his testimony by writing hymns but he did this in a very creative and purposeful way. Now, for years, John composed a short aid memoir for his congregation. It was a gift he employed so badly when he was at sea and was now turning to the service of the master. It could take him up to two days to compose a hymn, but when it was completed, it was actually the outline of his sermon. He'd learned it because as he walked down the streets, he heard the women at their bobbins, their bobbin tells, reciting little ditties. It's where all the village gossip went the rounds, actually. And they would cite a ditty to keep them in a rhythm of their, of their bo lace bobbins. And he realized that they had a remarkable memory of remembering verses. So he thought, well, why don't I give them something worthwhile remembering? And he would give an outline of his sermon in the form of a hymn. They forgot the sermon, they learned the hymn, they knew what the sermon was all about. 
Eventually, he wrote a new hymn for his prayer meeting each week and frequently expounded it to the congregation before they were permitted to, permitted to sing it for the first time. He began in earnest at the close of 1772, and within six years, he had written and expounded over 300 hymns. Now, many of his hymns were topical, and that's why they haven't come down to us. They reflected life at Olney, winter, spring, summer, harvest, a violent storm, a sharp frost, the earthquake of 1775, an eclipse of the moon on the 30th of July, 1776, the great fire at Olney, the year later, 1777, and even the visit of a lion to the town. They all provided local themes for hymns that would fix people's minds on much more important issues. Some of the hymns, of course, have become part of our national heritage. He was a godly man, John Newton, but practical too. His understanding of the human heart, his experience of it, equipped him to lead and teach God's word in a way that made sense for the everyday life. And of course, his most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace, well, that's just the story of John Newton's life. His famous hymn, Amazing Grace, was based upon a sermon he preached on the first morning of a new year from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 to 17, where King David reviews his, the mercy of God to a man as weak and sinful as himself. And John Newton in this hymn, as you well know, reviewed his own life. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the song, the verses, came to America and became, well, the song we all know and love. The story of a song, Amazing Grace. This is Our American Stories. listening to Andrea Bocelli, his version of Amazing Grace. This is the story of a song. We just covered John Newton's life. He wrote the words. What about the music? Where did it come from and how did it come to America? How did this American, essentially American song get here from Great Britain? Well, that story's chronicled in Stephen Turner's Amazing Grace. Pick the book up. It's terrific. He also wrote the great book, A Man Called Cash. I don't think there's a finer music writer in America than Steve Turner. Well, he started off with a quote from George Pullen Jackson, who wrote the book Spiritual Folk Songs of Early America. This is a 1937 book, a musicologist. And he wrote, quote, The poem is by Newton, but the tune's source is unknown to the Southern compilers. In other words, he had searched, he couldn't find it. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, because there are some breakthrough artists that take this song into the 20th century and propel it 
into every room, every bedroom in America and the world. And one of the first is a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson, who had this to say about the song and about the types of music that imbued the song with its melodies and its rhythms. She said, quote, I believe the blues and jazz music and even rock and roll stuff all got their beat and their melody from the sanctified church. We Baptists sang sweet and we had the long and short meter on beautiful songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But when those holiness people tore into I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me up, they came up with a real jubilation. Let's take a listen to Mahalia Jackson's version. And then it was the Falkies who really popularized the song. Said Turner, quote, Pete Seeger seemed like an unlikely user of Amazing Grace. Not only was he not a Christian, but at a time when the most feared enemy of Christian America was godless Russia, he was a member of the American Communist Party. And then came the hit of all hits, Judy Collins. Again, another Falkie. And the watershed event was this a cappella single released by Judy in December of 1970, which climbed into the bestseller charts in both Britain and America. Although a pop hit, Turner wrote, Collins was not a pop singer. She was a folk singer who never disguised her roots. Her recording of Amazing Grace owed nothing to either rock or pop and in fact flouted the conventional wisdom of both. Said Judy Collins, quote, It was a song that I felt and had always known. It had come down to me from rural Tennessee, where my mom's family had produced missionaries and ministers, and from Idaho, where my dad had farmed. It was sung in the Methodist church in Denver, where I was a part of the choir as a child. Here's Judy Collins's version. That's it. 
Of the 500 commercially released recordings held by the Library of Congress, 97% were made in the years after Judy Collins recorded that song. And by the way, she's not a believer, but she loved the song, and that's what's so beautiful about this country. The non-believers can celebrate believers' words, and sometimes vice versa. Now let's take a walk through some of the other great versions of this song, and there are so many. But let's take a listen to how Al Green sets things up and just a little bit of this one verse And from the soulful Memphis sounds across the pond to Ireland and the Celtic women. And back to the more urban and African-American traditions, here's Ray Charles. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton said this about himself, his own life, and one of the last things he ever wrote, actually. And he was writing this to his God, quote, Perhaps thy grace may have recovered some from an equal degree of apostasy, infidelity, and profligacy, but few of them have been redeemed from such a state of misery and depression as I was in upon the coast of Africa when thy unsought mercy wrought for my deliverance. And so we close with Alan Jackson. This is our American stories, the story of a song, John Newton's story, Amazing Grace's story. Amazing Grace, how sweet the 